meditation practice is an investigation of who we are. It's an investigation of our bodies through awareness of movement, through awareness of the sensations we feel in the body, through awareness of the breath, through an awareness of the subtle energies that we begin to feel. Meditation is an investigation of our minds, of our thoughts, of our feelings, our emotions, of how our minds create suffering in our lives, of how we can experience freedom in our lives. Meditation is an investigation of awareness, of the mystery of consciousness itself. What is it that's knowing all these things? What is the nature of this knowing? Meditation is the investigation and the discovery of the essential nature of mind. In this context, we're using mind, the word mind, in its largest sense. You might think of it as the heart mind, not simply mind in the usual Western sense of brain or intellect or thought. Mind here includes all of those things I've mentioned. Of thought and feeling and intuition and silence and awareness. And one of the things that we discover in this investigation of ourselves is that even though our stories, our backgrounds, our histories are all quite different, the nature of this body, heart, mind is the same in all of us. The nature of pain, the nature of sadness, the nature of happiness, of anger, of fear, of joy. Whether we're in America, in India, in Burma, in Tibet, in Japan, Throughout the world, the nature of this mind-body is the same. And it's the same, was the same in the time of the Buddha as it is now. In some of the discourses, it describes how the Buddha had backaches as well. That's kind of comforting in a way. And this really points to one characteristic of the Dharma. It's often described as timeless because of this nature of mind and body that is in common to all of us. And because it's a timeless understanding, this has a very striking implication. Because it's timeless, the more deeply we understand ourselves, the more fully we understand ourselves, the more deeply and fully we understand each other. Because we're making that connection on the Dharma level, on what's timeless and true for us all. There are two perspectives on practice, two perspectives on meditation practice, that illuminate and complement each other. I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about these two different perspectives. 
I call it the science and the art of meditation. Meditation from one perspective is a science of the mind. Now, the power of the Buddhist teachings was his very deep and detailed understanding of exactly how this mind and body work. As one teacher put it, it's of knowing what's what. Our lives are not unfolding by chance, they're following certain laws. There are laws of nature at work. One of the most important of these laws for understanding the possibility of happiness in our lives is the understanding of the law of cause and effect. We can see it very clearly in the physical world that we live in. Just one example of countless examples. If we pollute the environment, there are consequences. There are consequences to our health, to our well-being, to our happiness. If we don't pollute the environment, if we clean it up, it has quite different consequences. Even though we often are not paying attention to this, it's not difficult to understand when we open our eyes and see. Just like physical laws of nature of cause and effect, there's also a law of cause and effect of the mind. The Buddha understood what forces in the mind created suffering and what causes in the mind create happiness. There's a Tibetan prayer which really emphasizes this a lot. It says, May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May you have happiness and the causes of happiness. And I like it because it just emphasizes these things don't just arise by themselves. They arise out of conditions, and so we need to understand the conditions. And the Buddha went one step further in explaining this law of cause and effect, and the Buddhist terminology, the law of karma. That is the understanding that actions bring results. Actions have consequences. He went one step further in clarifying this when he said that what most deeply determines the result of our actions is the motivation behind it. That motivation is the key. And he outlined the three basic wholesome and unwholesome roots. He said when we act, motivated by greed, by hatred, by delusion, by ignorance, when that's the motivation that's underneath the action, the result of that is some kind of suffering. That's the karmic fruit. That's the effect. And when we act, motivated by generosity, by love, by wisdom, it's like planting a seed of happiness in our lives. All of this is summed up in one brief phrase that in some way I think just encapsulates the heart of the Buddhist teachings and it really can become a life koan. And that is 
Everything rests on the tip of motivation. We can really hold that understanding in our lives. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. There's no way to emphasize enough the importance of that understanding. Because all of the consequences in our lives rest on that tip. They depend on the motivation. Genuine wisdom understands this relationship between motivation and action and result. This is what wisdom understands. But in the midst of our lives, we often don't see this clearly. We're not paying attention to it. We're not always seeing where our actions are leading and whether we want to go there or not. One reason that we sometimes don't see clearly is that we're guiding our lives by a very unreliable principle. That very often we guide our lives and guide our choices by whether it brings us pleasure or not in the moment. Like very often we go for the pleasant. Why? Because it's pleasant. (laughs) And we like it. (laughs) But sometimes, sort of a pleasant experience in the moment an action that brings us pleasure in the moment, can actually lead to long-term suffering. And we can see that a lot in just all different kinds of addictive behavior that bring pleasure in the moment, whether it's addiction to food or to drugs or to catalog shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever notice how difficult it is to put the catalogs down? There's something I must want. (laughs) So we might get a pleasant hit in the moment, but it's not leading to happiness. And sometimes the reverse is true. Sometimes what's unpleasant in the moment can actually lead to very good results. And this was really brought to mind just in these last weeks. I know the, especially those of you who just came, uh, before you came or watching any of the Olympics. But it's always inspiring to me to see these people who have brought you know, a discipline to that kind of perfection. One of the highlights you know, of, these, of these games, uh, just happened to, to see it on TV, it was this young Swiss guy who won two gold medals in ski jumping. He was just 20 years old. He had never won anything. He was a completely dark horse in the, you know, in the picture. Nobody expected him to do anything. And somehow he went down the, you know, the chute or whatever you call that and, you know, and did this jump. And it was, like, it was like a bird flying. It was so beautiful and his form was so perfect. You know, and he won the gold in one event and he won the gold in a second event. I mean, everybody was completely disbelieving, and he was disbelieving. 
you know, and the joy, you know, is, you know, of, uh, seeing his expression when he realized he had won the gold was so amazing, particularly because it was so unexpected. And then you think of all the training that went into that and all the, the pain. You know, it said that sometime in the last year he had been practicing and he had fallen in a severe concussion and he just kept doing it. So sometimes, and we see this in undertaking any training for something we want to accomplish. Very often in the training it's difficult. You know, it's not pleasant. And yet it can lead to a good result. So you're kind of in the well, the Junior Olympics <laughs> the me- of meditation. <laughs> you know, and the first day is hard. It's, it's for many people, for most people, even experienced meditators. You know, you come and you sit and the body's restless and it doesn't feel good and it's achy and the mind's very restless and it's hard to settle down. So it's unpleasant in the moment but it actually will bring good results. It brings happiness. So pleasure as the guiding principle for our choices is not reliable. We need to come back again and again to be looking at motivation because that's what determines the result. What is it that's motivating our actions? Another reason we may not often see clearly the connection of result to action is because sometimes our motives are mixed. Sometimes part of what we're feeling is really wholesome, part of what we're feeling is unwholesome. There may be a series of conflicting motives. It takes a lot of honesty and a lot of attention and a lot of courage to be willing to look into our hearts and to see what is actually there. Not to be acting simply on some assumption that everything we do is good and noble and wonderful. A lot may be, but probably not everything. And I think we need to acknowledge that in addition to following our hearts, we need to train our hearts. And that takes this ability to see clearly, to really discern what are our motives, what is it that's going on. So meditation as a science of mind means we practice and refine certain skills of observation. If we want to see clearly, we need to be able to observe very carefully what it is that's happening. Actually, the word vipassana, literally, from Pali, it means seeing clearly. And so that's the kind of meditation you're practicing. It's the seeing clearly meditation. How to do it? We need to develop the science of mind. Meditation is science so that we become quite precise and exact with what it is that's going on. And all the forms and all the techniques and all the methods are really just supports for developing this care of observation.
my first teacher, Manindraji, uh, in India, he said something when I first went there that just made so much sense to me. It really hooked me in terms of the practice. I'd gone to India to look for a teacher and I'd gone to a lot of different places. Finally, I ended up in Bodh Gaya. He had just come back from his training in Burma. And we were talking, one of the first things he said to me was, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That's all. It was so simple and so clear and so much common sense in it. Now, there was nothing to join and no rituals and no belief systems and nothing like that. If you want to... You want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. How else could we understand it? It's just so simple. So the question then is, how do we refine our awareness? What are the tools that we use that help us in this process? The Buddha laid out some very simple methods. The first and one which you're experiencing now, it's the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking. You know, you come to a retreat, and there's not much going on here. You, know, you, you go back after the retreat, and friends who are not familiar with this may say, well, you know, well, what do you do for a week, or two weeks, or three weeks? I sat, I walked. <laughs> I sat, I walked. The very simplicity of the form helps us to see what it is that's going on within us. It begins to illuminate the the range of what we're feeling in the body and what we're feeling in the mind, precisely because we're not distracting ourselves so much. Mostly in our lives, we just keep running. We're so busy from one thing to another. To be in the simplicity of this form is a very powerful tool. And within the simplicity of form, we create a primary object of attention. We focus on a primary object of attention. It could be the movement of the feet or legs in walking, the sitting posture or the breath in sitting. And we simply practice coming back to that primary object again and again. It becomes the reference point from which we can then observe all our other experience. We use this primary object to develop some concentration, some stillness, some steadiness. We come back again and again. And this method, this very simple method of coming back, is really quite universal in spiritual traditions. It's not particularly Buddhist. This is the training of mind. A quotation that I use a lot because it, it just illustrates the universality of this training. It comes from the Christian tradition, the Catholic tradition. A spiritual guide named St. Francis de Sales. He just expressed this very same training so well. He said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, even though it went away every time you brought it back, 
your hour would be very well employed. That's what we're doing. We have this primary object of attention, and we bring our heart back to it. And even if it goes away every time we bring it back, the hour is very well employed. This is the training. From this very simple practice, even after one day of meditation, for those of you who just came, one of the most important insights of insight meditation has been realized. You may not have realized that you've realized it, (laughs) uh, but you have, and I'm going to tell you what it is. The very important insight, which in some way is transforming, is the realization of how often our minds wander. Is there anybody who has not had this insight? (laughs) I don't think so. It's like even in one day of practice, we begin to see what our minds are doing. And yet, most people who have not taking the time to look inward, they don't know this. You go up to somebody on the street, you know, who hasn't done kind of a reflective, contemplative practice, and you ask them, does your mind wander? Oh, no, no, I, I know what I'm doing. Because unless we take the time to really look and observe, we don't know. And it's quite amazing, as becomes becomes starting startlingly clear how often our minds, we just hop on these trains of association, we have no idea where the train is going, we don't know we've hopped on, and we're just kind of lost in these mind worlds. And what's even more amazing than that is these worlds which we're lost in don't even have to be pleasant. (laughs) You know, often we're just kind of reliving old memories and hurts and arguments What is going on? Why are we doing that? This first insight into how often our minds wander, it leads us to the understanding of how important it is to stabilize our awareness. It's essential that we learn how to do it because in our lives it's not simply a question of sometimes or even often daydreaming. It's much more crucial than that. Because often it's not just daydreaming away, but very often we're acting on these thoughts and feelings. And so we get lost in you know, these conditioned habits of mind and very often are acting them out. And we can see this so clearly And when we look at the world and we look at so many places of tremendous suffering in the world, of war, of violence, of injustice, of so many situations of suffering, what is going on? When we look underneath to the causes, to the fundamental causes, it's people acting out stories and feelings of fear, of hatred, of greed, That's what's being acted out. We really can see what suffering 
an untrained mind can bring. And an important realization is that it's not only out there. It's not only others. We can see it and we need to see it in ourselves as well. The Buddha, he he just expressed so clearly this when he said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. But once mastered, not even those closest to you, not even your mother or father, can help you as much as a mind that is well tamed. Our own suffering and happiness and the suffering and happiness of the world depends on this taming of the mind, training of the mind. So we practice with this primary object, something very simple. Now just returning again and again, coming back from this wandering mind, this discursive mind. Coming back again and again to the simplicity of the moment. But this takes a certain intentionality. It's not going to happen by itself. Because the habit of mind is to wander, is to get lost. So this is a certain quality of right effort. We need to make the intention that this is what we're doing here. And we need that so we don't simply keep indulging the wandering mind, the dreaming mind. There's a certain, there's a certain fire of awakening that we need to cultivate. Sharon spoke last night of you know, going to India and anxiously awaiting the first profound instructions and then hearing the instructions about staying with the breath. Really waiting for the deeper teachings. Well, tonight's the night. (laughs) So, (laughs) 30 years later, I thought I would really give the secret teachings. So you'll all be the benefit, the benefit of this. It's really not about being with one breath at a time. That's not the, that's not the real teaching. The deeper teaching is to be with just half a breath at a time. <laughs> because one breath is too much. We don't have it. We don't have the strength to stay with a whole breath. And you see, you try to be with, I mean, both an in and an out. (laughs) And, you know, we try to do it, but it's really too much. And so then the mind wanders, and then we get discouraged, and then we get restless. The real secret here is that half a breath is just right. (laughs) And this is true. I think all of us can manage. Okay, so we really arouse the effort, the intention. 
let me be aware of a half breath. That's all. Just aware of the in, aware of the rising. <sighs> Did it. <laughs> you know, it's like that perfect ski jump. <laughs> and then the next half breath, just the out breath, or just the falling movement. Well, it's quite amazing. When we are there with just half breath at a time, something really begins to happen. There's a slow stability of awareness that starts to happen. The duration of our concentration begins to build. Because we're proceeding with care, with patience, I want to read something from, this is from a, a, an American poet and writer, Dennis, I'm not sure how his name is pronounced, Dennis Saleh, S-A-L-E-H. He wrote, I've been hard at work now longer than I like to remember on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I found out how the pyramids were built, slowly. Almost anything can be done, it seems, if one proceeds slowly enough. But we moderns simply cannot grasp this. And when I read that, it just, it so resonated. Almost anything can be done, even Buddhahood, can be done if we proceed slowly enough. Now, so often we're discouraged by the enormity of a task, you know, or the length of a journey. We become impatient with the difficulties that arise. Or we lose faith in ourselves, in our own capacity. But patience, this half breath at a time, it shows us just what is right in front of us. It's just this moment, just this half breath. It's not an hour's worth of breaths that we need to be with. It's just that much. And by building the pyramids, half breath at a time, they get accomplished. The training of our mind gets accomplished, half breath at a time. And what's so amazing about this is we can all do it. Now, so as we practice this secret teaching... The mind does quiet, it begins to settle, and slowly there's a feeling of a kind of inner spaciousness, an inner stillness, sense of relief, an inner relaxation. It's like we come to this place within us that has this big sign, Welcome to Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> This half breath at a time has the power to cut through all of our stories about experience. You know, we really begin to see the difference between being lost in our thoughts, just caught up in some mind world, and recognizing all of that as being just a thought. When we're undistracted, 
in the awareness of a half-breath, we begin to recognize how simply and spontaneously and naturally awareness arises. Just as an example of this, if you're sitting and there's a sound, you know, sound of a car or sound of a bird, and you just hear the sound, do you have to make any effort to know that sound? No, you're just sitting. The sound arises and it's known. All by itself, awareness happens naturally. We begin to really see and experience deeply that the nature of the mind is awareness. It's not something we have to create. It's not even something we have to develop. The nature of the mind is awareness, and we simply have to come back to it again and again. Now, just like the nature of a mirror is to reflect what comes in front of it, and it does it without distinction, just whatever comes in front of it, its nature is to reflect. In the same way, the nature of the mind is to know. The nature of the mind is to be aware. So it's exactly the same way with the feeling of each breath. We don't have to do anything to create the awareness. When we're settled back, undistracted, when we're not lost in our thoughts or daydreams, we just settle back, the sensations of the breath are happening completely naturally as a function of inhalation and exhalation. We're not creating the sensations of the breath. It's all happening by itself. And so in the practice, if we can settle back, if we can relax, and simply allow this natural awareness of what's arising to be there, to remain undistracted, we begin to get a sense of the great ease of this practice. Of course, the key operative phrase here is remaining undistracted. But I think it's an important point. There's a difference when we're thinking we have to struggle to be mindful, or we see, yes, we get lost in our thoughts, and the effort is simply to come back to the state of awareness, which is the nature of mind. So it's always a settling back to what's happening spontaneously. So the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking, primary object, is the first tool of practice, the science of mind. Second very helpful tool is slowing down. Now our lives and our culture is so speedy and we're going at such a fast pace in our lives. The gift of a retreat is it gives us the time and the space to disengage from that speed a little bit where we really can settle back into the moment, settle back into our bodies. Not rushing, not anticipating. Not leaning forward into the next experience. Now really pay attention during the day. As you go through the day, pay attention to the feeling of rushing. And rushing doesn't have anything to do with speed. You can rush moving very slowly. 
And I've noticed this when I've been on retreat. I'm doing the walking meditation very slowly. Lift and move in place. And then the lunch bell rings. And I'm still lift, move, place. But I can just feel from the inside that energy. (laughs) Leaning forward to the lunch line. Rushing is that anticipation. It's being ahead of ourselves. It's a very noticeable feeling. And so it can become a mindfulness bell of wakefulness. Every time you feel that you're toppling forward, pay attention to that. Take a moment, drop back, settle back into your body, and then proceed. As one help in really staying back in the moment rather than leaning forward, There's a big level shift in the meditation practice when we go from the simple knowing that we're moving, which is itself being mindful, but we go from knowing we're movement to actually feeling the sensations of the movement. You understand the difference? And we can be moving or walking, and we know we're walking. And so we're kind of there. But a deeper level, and one which very much strengthens the concentration and the awareness, is when we go from that simple knowing that we're walking to settling back into the body and we're feeling the sensations of those movements. You know, the vibration, the tingling, the pressure, the weight, whatever it may be. To the degree that you can stay on that level through the day, I think you'll find that the mind settles in a, in a very deep way. There's a Tibetan proverb which I think is is really helpful to keep in mind. It says, the Dharma is nobody's property. It belongs to whomever is interested. The Dharma is there to discover. The truth of our experience is there to discover. The Dharma belongs to whoever is interested in investigating, in looking, in seeing. And so all the tools for the science of mind, this careful observation, is for us to connect with what's happening precisely and carefully in the moment. There's a second perspective on meditation. Not only is it a science of the mind, we can understand meditation as being an art. It's an art of the mind. Because we're not only seeing with clarity and discernment what it is that's happening, we also begin to see how we're relating to what's happening. And that's the art of it. There are very many different ways of relating to experience. We can be aware of what's there, and we can be relating in a wide variety of ways. We can be aware of a situation or with what's arising in our own meditation. But we might be relating to it with a great deal of reactivity. We we may be seeing things 
and just downloading all of our judgments and likes and dislikes and preferences and wants and aversions. Or we can be relating to that same experience with openness, with equanimity, with compassion. The experience is the same. The way we're relating, completely different. How are we with different sounds? Very interesting to watch what the mind does with different sounds. During the metta retreat in one of the groups, a yogi reported an experience which was just a wonderful example of what our minds can do. It was, I think, about 10.30 at night, 10.30 or 11, and her room was next to the showers. And she's in her room trying to go to sleep, and she hears the shower going. And it's going for a long time. And of course, that's after shower hours. So as she, she was reporting this in the group, and she was saying, you know, she was just lying there, and she was getting angrier and angrier. And then, doesn't that person know? Couldn't they read the sign? This is not the time to be taking a shower. And then she was saying, well, what should I do? Should I get up? Should I? And she was trying to watch her mind, you know, just anger, anger, ill will, you know, impatience. <laughs> but it wasn't helping, you know, and the sound of the shower was just making her more and more agitated. So finally, after, you know, struggling with her own mind, you know, she said that she kind of got up and went into the shower and she was all set to kind of just, you know, knock on the door and point to the sign that says the shower hours. So she went into the bathroom, she looked inside, there was no one there. And it wasn't that shower running. It was coming from some other place completely in the building. As soon as she realized it wasn't that shower, she went back to sleep. (laughs) The noise was fine. (laughs) Same noise. But our concepts, our minds make stories. We relate to it in different ways. And depending how we're relating to it, we either get agitated and upset, or it's not a problem. And it's all done in our own minds. The situation was exactly the same before and after. This points to an insight and understanding that can transform our lives. It transforms our meditation. So it's, this is really a critical point. And that is that from the perspective of awareness it doesn't matter what's arising. It doesn't matter what the object is. Because the nature of the mind is simply to know. It's like the mirror reflecting what comes in front of it. Our meditation is not about having certain experiences. It's not about having this happen rather than that happen. Because all experiences are changing anyway. This is a very hard lesson to get. So I'll say it again. (laughs) From the perspective of awareness, it doesn't matter what's arising. We can equally be aware. Something's pleasant, fine. Something's unpleasant, fine. The nature of the mind simply is to know. 
one of my great Vipassana mantras that came to me in practice. This was after years of practice. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) And so, kind of all that effort and struggle, oh, I want this experience, it all keeps changing. That's not what our practice is about. It's not trying to have a particular experience. It's about settling back into the awareness of whatever it is that's happening. It's really learning to rest in this mirror-like wisdom of the mind. How do we relate to the breath? We can see this same range of relationships. We need to practice the same art of meditation as we're feeling with the breath, as we're feeling the breath. Do we want it to be a certain way? Are we trying to have the perfect breath? Are we impatient, pulling the next breath in? Are we bored, you know, indifferent? There's a meditative disease, which I'd like to mention to you before you catch it, and that is the state of more or less mindful. <laughs> you know, we're kind of mindful. We're kind of there, but not really. And it's a disease because that fools us into thinking we actually are being mindful. You know, and so we have to pay attention. And the, the indication of the disease is when we're feeling kind of apathetic or bored or disinterested, because all of that is a sign of a lack of close attention. Fritz Perls, the famous psychologist, he said so aptly, he said, boredom is lack of attention. It's not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to it. And so when we feel that kind of indifference or boredom, that's telling us, okay, come in closer. Let me feel it more closely. So we change our relationship to it. Meditation is the art of skillful relationship. And what we learn about relationship in the solitude of our practice here, we can then begin to apply in our lives. I think there's a very useful distinction between loneliness and aloneness, which begins to reveal a lot about our understanding of the art of relationship. Loneliness, the feeling of loneliness, is one of separation, where we really feel apart from everything and everyone, and it's a painful state. Aloneness actually derives from, and I was investigating this linguistically, it derives from the Middle English alone of all one, of being one with. And early on in my practice, when I first went to India and met Manindraji, my teacher, he, we would be walking in Bodh Gaya, you know, 
together. And he would be telling me, oh, I never feel lonely. You know, there's the sky and the clouds and the flowers. And at that time I kind of heard him and I said, right. <laughs> you know, it just didn't, didn't seem like much to me. <laughs> but over the years, I have so come to appreciate what he was trying to show me and teach me. So many times since then, where I've been alone on a retreat or alone in the wilderness and feel completely connected to my experience. You know, it could be the feel of the air on my body. It could be the feeling of just moving through space. It could be the feeling of the breath going through my body. When we're in that place of aloneness, all oneness, and we really are truly connecting with our experience, with the simplicity of our experience. For me, this is the real meaning of intimacy. This is where it starts. It starts in the art of meditative awareness, when we're not toppling forward into the next activity or the next meal, or even the next breath, when we're not toppling forward, when we're really back in ourselves, in the most gentle and open and receptive way, these times can be amazingly joyous. And they're as far from loneliness as one can imagine. And I really understood what Manindraji was saying then. When we're in this place of connectedness with the simplicity of our experience moment to moment, the simplest things, the breath, a movement, a sound, it's such a wonderfully joyous state. It's really in freedom from wanting that the intimate connection happens. And this is true in our relationships in the world as well as in the experiences on a meditation retreat. And it would be interesting to look in our lives because so often we're under the illusion that if we find the right person in the right way who behaves just as they want, that that's where intimacy arises. And we miss the foundation that's within ourselves. That openness and that connectedness in each moment. It's quite amazing. And then we bring that, that art of meditation to the world. So we bring together these two perspectives. We bring together the science of the practice, this careful, systematic, precise observation of what's happening. It's 
so we really know what's what. And we develop the art of this open, honest, accepting, gentle relationship to what's happening. And there's one Tibetan practice which is called cutting through. And through developing both the science and the art of meditation, we do cut through to the essential nature of our minds. We cut through to the essential nature of awareness itself. And in the most fundamental way, we begin to touch the truth of our lives. So this is our practice. This is what we're doing here. This is the training. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. I'd like to end with a poem that is not particularly Buddhist, but for me conveys the feeling tone of this intimate connection with things. The name of the poem is A Blessing by James Wright. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota. Twilight bound softly forth on the grass. In the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loveliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white, her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. It's the joy of connectedness. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.